Welcome to Unshaken. I'm your host, Julie Van Warmer. This is a podcast of the Women of the Word Ministry of Christ the Word Church. Today, episode seven, is the first in a two-part series called Trusting God in the Big and Small. Julie Morgan shared this at the annual Regarding Him conference in the spring of 2017 at Christ the Word Church. There's so much here, so let's jump right in. Life doesn't always go the way I want it to or the way I plan it to. And when that happens, I can find myself getting really, really frustrated. Or I can fear that it's going to happen again in the future. Or I can get bitter at the way things have happened in the past. Fearful or worried for the future, frustrated or irritated and angry with my current reality, or bitter or offended at things in the past. If you can identify with any of those, fearful, frustrated, irritated, or bitter within the last year, I want you to raise your hands. Okay, now keep them up if you've had it in the last week, and I want you all to look a quick look around and realize we are all in this together. Okay? But fearful, frustrated, angry, bitter is not the way I want to live my life. And I'm guessing since you all came here today, it's not the way you want to live yours either. Sometime in the past year, after a particularly long day of parenting and homeschooling my kids, which translated means it was a day in which I lost my temper with my kids over a bunch of minor annoying disturbances to my plan for the day. I was very frustrated, grouchy, angry, and distinctly lacking in joy. I was not happy with the way my day had gone. I remember thinking to myself, how come I had so much peace and joy when I was going through breast cancer while pregnant with my sixth kid? That year was hard and difficult in so many ways. But it was a year mostly marked by joy and peace with God's plan for my life. And here I am, frustrated and angry over toys not getting picked up, homeschooling lessons not going smoothly, snotty noses being wiped on me despite instructing all of my children in the proper use of Kleenex. And my husband, his job kept him away late that night again. None of those were life-threatening. None of them were really big things. As I reflected, I realized that I am much better at trusting God in the big things than I am at trusting him in the ordinary little everyday things of life. My words and my attitude that day reflected the truth that in the ordinary day-to-day things, I didn't trust that God was in control. And if he was in control, I didn't trust that he was being good to me. The root of my problem is truly a lack of trust. I've not trusted that God was in control or cared about my little things. As Cheryl mentioned this morning, my wrong beliefs about God were affecting my actions. And to change my actions and emotional responses, I have to change what I believe about God. You may identify with me not struggling. You may identify with me struggling in the little things, or you may be struggling with some really big things in life. In either case, today we're going to start by talking about a two-tiered foundation about beliefs about God 
And then I'm going to give you some really practical applications about how to increase your trust, whether it's for something big or something small. All right. So um, until recently, I was a nurse in critical care, ICU at Tilio Hospital. I retired about four years ago. Um, and I'm not sure how many of you have seen an extensive hernia. But while I was still working in the hospital, I took care of a patient whose intestines were like poking out through a weak part of their muscle wall, and his hernia was literally like this big, poking out through a weak muscle. Um, it was really, really painful for him. The plan was for him to go to surgery and have a strong mesh put in place of that weak muscle, and it was to hold his intestines in. The mesh would be a foundation of support against the pressure of his intestines. If the mesh held, his intestines would stay put. If it failed, his intestines would push back out and he'd have this huge, painful bulge again. I bet you guys can't tell where I'm going with this, right? So, thankfully for this man, the mesh used was a really good support and his intestines are now happily back where they are supposed to be. So the application for us is this. We need that good mesh support in our lives. One that is true, one that is strong. We need a foundation to support us against the pressures in our life. So the two tiered, the two truths about God are this. This is on your handout at the top. God is in control of all things, big and small. If he isn't in control of every little detail, then he isn't in control at all. The foundation isn't sound, and we can't trust him. The second truth is this. God is good in all things, whether we feel it or not. If he isn't good, the foundation isn't sound, and we should not trust him. So the first truth. God is in control of all things. You may have heard it referred to as God is sovereign. God's sovereignty means that he sustains and governs the entire universe, bringing all events to the end that he determined. It means that he's in control of all things, everywhere, at all times. Often people object to this because they don't see how God is working today. There's too much pain. There's too much suffering. But just because we may not see it or we may not understand it doesn't mean that God isn't working. This past summer at our church camping trip, which is a crazy amount of fun, um, a man gave a small talk, and I really don't think he knew the impact it had on many people. But he talked about how he had read through the Bible something like nine times in a year. And I just sat there going, what? Because I realized I had never read through the entire Bible in a year, ever, in my whole life as a Christian. And so after his challenge, I thought, well, if he can do it nine times, I can do it once. And so I committed to do it. I've been amazed, as I've read through the Bible, over and over again, how God is always at work, bringing all events to the end he determined. In the Old Testament book of Psalms, Psalm 139, it says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Ecclesiastes 7.14 says, When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider, God has made the one as well as the other. 
God is the author of our times, both good and bad. The New Testament of the Bible carries the same theme. Romans 8.28 says, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God is the author of all of our stories, crafting all things to achieve his purposes. So I found it really eye-opening to see God's plan and control across the Bible, and I thought it might help solidify this truth in your lives for you to see it too. So if you all open your Bibles, we're going to start at Genesis, and we're going to read all the way to Revelation. Nobody? Nobody wants to do that? Okay. So, obviously that's very, very impractical. So, if you flip your handout over, put your pens down, and just listen. I took the liberty of taking notes for you, because you're not going to keep up with me. Okay? And I'm going to walk you through the Bible, um, kind of one book at a time. So, just sit back, listen, and enjoy the ride. We're going to start in the first book of the Bible with the very first verse. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is in control of creating the physical universe. Later on in Genesis, God chooses a particular man and woman to be the father of a nation. But that man and his wife were so old, it was laughable, literally laughable, that they would conceive a child. Abraham and Sarah, however, did have a child named Isaac, and through Isaac, the nation of Israel is formed. God is in control of bearing children. Later in the book of Genesis, we have the story of Joseph. Now, Joseph was Abraham's great-grandson, and he was the very favored son of his father, Jacob. However, his 11 brothers weren't so happy with that status. So they sell him into slavery, and he ends up in Egypt. And while he's in Egypt, he's falsely accused and is put in prison. Through a series of events, he becomes second in command to the Pharaoh at the time. And Joseph, because he knew a famine was coming, was able to store up food during the time of plenty to save up when there was a famine. Now here is the kicker of this story. That famine affected his brothers that sold him into slavery. So his brothers come before him, and Joseph is able to provide food for them, and he's reunited with his beloved father. Joseph wisely says to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. God is in control of people's evil actions and wills them for his own purpose. In the next book of the Bible, we have the story of Moses. So years later, the Israelites are still living in Egypt, and they've now grown to be a large number of people. The new Pharaoh viewed the Israelites as a threat to his nation, so he made them slaves and ordered that every Israelite baby boy be killed. Moses is born during this time, and his mom hides him until she can no longer conceal him. And trusting God, she puts him in a basket and floats him down the Nile River. Now, Pharaoh's daughter happened to be by the Nile at that moment, saw a baby in the basket, 
drew him out of the water, and raised him as her own. God is in control of people who don't even believe in him, like the Pharaoh's daughter, to accomplish his plan. Later, Moses is called by God to deliver his people out of slavery in Egypt and to take them to the promised land of Canaan. Moses comes before Pharaoh to ask that the Israelites be allowed to leave, but God hardens Pharaoh's heart so to display his glory through the ten plagues. God is in control of the hearts of man. The Israelites leave Egypt and they're chased by Pharaoh's army and they get stuck between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army. God causes the Red Sea to be split open. The Israelites walk across on dry land. Pharaoh's army chases them. And while Pharaoh's army is in the middle of the Red Sea, the water collapses back on top and the entire army is wiped out. God is in control of water and in the lives of mankind. Joshua is the leader that follows Moses, and he's given the task of entering and overtaking the promised land. Joshua and the Israelites defeat the city of Jericho simply by walking around the city seven times and shouting as God commanded. God is in control of battles. In the book of Judges, we give the recount of Israel turning away from God and God using foreign nations to overtake Israel to draw their hearts back to him. God brings deliverers such as Deborah, Gideon, and Samson to fight miraculous battles and deliver Israel from the enemies. God is in control of our enemies and of our deliverance. The next book is Ruth, who is a foreigner who married into a Jewish family. Her husband dies, and she chooses to follow her mother-in-law back to her mother-in-law's native land and live in poverty. One day, she's gleaning or um, going behind people who are harvesting in a field to take what is the leftovers, to get enough food to have food for her family. While she's there, she just happens to catch the owner of the field's eye, and he notices her. That man eventually becomes her husband. They have a son, and that son is in the line of Jesus. God works through ordinary means, like meeting in a field and marrying, to redeem a lost and foreign woman. God is in control of our ordinary circumstances. In 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, Israel decides that they want a king to rule them like the other nations. And so God gives them Saul, but Saul is unfaithful. And God sends the prophet Samuel to inform Saul that he will no longer have the kingdom to rule. God is in control of who is on the throne. Solomon became king when he was very young, and he asked God for a heart to judge the nation of Israel wisely. God granted Solomon that wise and discerning heart, and he was so famous for his wisdom that the queen of Egypt came to see him. God is in control of granting wisdom and discernment. The nation of Israel then splits into two kingdoms after Solomon and turns from worshiping God. But God causes the Assyrian and Babylonian kings to overtake Israel so that they would turn back to God. God is in control of enemy nations and uses them to draw people back to himself. While the Israelites are in exile, the books of Chronicle, 
Daniel, Nehemiah, and Ezra tell of how God changed the hearts of foreign kings who did not believe in him to send Jewish people back to the promised land to build a temple for him. And here is the amazing part. Not only did he get them to send them back, these foreign kings give money to build the temple. God is in control of the hearts of rulers and in control of providing the means to accomplish his will. In the book of Esther, there's a story of a Jewish girl in exile who was taken from her uncle's home by order of the king. She finds favor with this king and becomes his wife. She learns of a plot to wipe out the entire Jewish nation, and she uses her proximity to the king to plead for the lives of her people. Esther was put in the right place at the right time through crazy circumstances to save the Jewish nation from destruction. God is in control of extraordinary circumstances. In the book of Job, Satan comes before God, and God tells Satan of Job's faith. Satan accuses God that the only reason Job is faithful is because God has protected him. God allows Satan to test Job, but puts limits on what Satan is allowed to do. All of Job's children are killed, his wealth is removed, his health is afflicted, he gets very unhelpful counsel from his friends, and his wife is far from supportive. But Job is unable to be killed by Satan. Job says at the end of the book, I know, Lord, that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God is in control of our afflictions and our sufferings and of Satan. Psalm 139, which is one of my favorite psalms in the whole Bible, says all of our days were ordained for us before one of them came to be. God is in control of how long we live and those days were determined before our birth. Proverbs 12 and 21 tells us that God is in control of the hearts of kings. Ecclesiastes, which is a book of wisdom, tells us how life is fleeting. It concludes with saying that God is in control of judgment and that all deeds, hidden and seen, will be judged at the end. In the book of Isaiah, there is much prophecy about a coming Messiah, where he'll be born, where he will come out from, how he will die. And those are all fulfilled in Jesus and recounted in the New Testament. God is in control of history and the fulfillment of prophecies. He keeps his prophecies. Jeremiah was another prophet to the Jewish nation. And many of you may have seen Jeremiah 29.11. It's often written on plaques and in Christian bookstores and on journal covers. And I have a dear friend who has it posted in her kitchen. Jeremiah 29.11 says, I know... God says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. But I bet none of you know what Jeremiah 29.10 says. Jeremiah 29.10 says, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, referring to the exile, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you. God is in control of the length of our afflictions and our future and our hope. 
In the book of Daniel, we have the story of one of the exiled Jewish men in the Babylonian kingdom, and he refused to eat the Babylonian king's choice food because it was unclean by Jewish standards. Instead, he ate only vegetables. Yet he became fatter than the people eating meat. This is like the worst diet ever. But God is in control of our physical bodies and able to work to sustain us by his own means. He sustained Daniel on vegetables. So moving on to the New Testament, I skipped a whole bunch of minor prophets for the sake of time. Moving on to the New Testament. The first four books of the New Testament are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they are referred to as the Gospels. The Gospels are full of displays of Jesus' power. There are multiple healings, physical miracles, people being raised from the dead. Jesus foretells his death, burial, and resurrection, and it happens just as he declared. Matthew 10 tells us that he has numbered the hairs on my head, and he has numbered the hairs on your head. And we need not fear. He is in control. The book of Acts relays the account of Saul, who was a man trying to kill Christians. God caused him to be blinded and had a man named Ananias come to tell him the truth and lay his hands on him. When he did, scales fell off his eyes and he was able to see both physically and spiritually for the first time. God is in control of our physical ailments and of opening spiritual eyes. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul tells us that God gave him an affliction to keep him humble. Now, we're not told what the affliction is, but he calls it a messenger of Satan. So I'm guessing it was nothing minor. God is in control of our afflictions and uses them for his purposes. Galatians tells us that God is in control of giving us true joy, love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those are gifts of the Holy Spirit, and they come from God. Colossians 2 tells us that God is in control of the creation and of holding the current world together. Hebrews 12 tells us that God is the author and perfecter of our faith. God is in control of beginning and maturing our faith. 1 Peter 4.19 tells us that believers will suffer according to the will of God. Yes, God is in control of our suffering. Revelation tells us what will happen in the future, that God will judge the people and the nations, and Satan will be overthrown. God is in control of the future. So we'll listen to the rest of this talk next time on Unshaken. Remember, when everything around you is shaken, you can stand unshaken because of our rock and our fortress, because of God. Until next time.